evidence and answers. What are our civic responsibilities, and how deep in politics should we as Christians get involved? These are great questions that deserve an answer. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukren. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Today, we're listening to another one of the exciting messages taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from across this nation. Our theme was, Can We Be Good Without God? and featured keynote speakers, Dr. Richard Land and Kirby Anderson. Without delay, let's listen as Kirby Anderson asks that hard question and responds with a biblical answer, right here in part one of his message entitled, Government and Civic Responsibility. Let's, if we can, though, talk about what is the Christian's responsibility. And last night, we spent a little bit of time, for those of you that were with us, talking about the history. Now I want to talk about what we do in terms of practical application. And one of the first verses I might talk about is the fact that in Philippians 3, it refers to the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. And, you know, you've heard the phrase that uh, some Christians are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Uh, But, you know, there is not only a citizenship we have in heaven, but there's obviously a citizenship we have here on earth. And John records that as our Lord, as in the Upper Room Discourse, talking about the fact that they have sent us into the world, and we have a citizenship here both in earth and in heaven. And some people have sort of gotten to the point where they say, well, you know, I'm just going to focus on the spiritual things, but I won't worry about what my civic responsibility might be. And I think what we're going to look at over the next couple of minutes is recognize that we have a responsibility also to be good citizens if indeed we are followers of Jesus Christ. And part of that gets into sometimes a confusion that people have about the church. Because in the New Testament, the idea of church is used in at least two different ways. One is certainly when we talk about the church, the body of Christ, believers all over the world, we have responsibilities, and we'll come back to this at the very end of this talk uh, this afternoon, and that is that we have a responsibility to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Other passages we can certainly look at would be in 2 Corinthians 5. It says that we are to be ambassadors. Just as an ambassador will go to a foreign country and represent his host country, so also as believers, we're in the world, but we are to represent Christ. And so certainly the church is in that section focused on the body of Christ, but the church is also used in a different way, as an institution. And there I think we recognize that there are separations between the church and the government. As a matter of fact, Jesus was asked a very important question. Do you ever pay a tax? And what does he say? Hand me a coin. Whose likeness is on that coin? I meant to bring one of those coins to show you. But anyway, you've probably seen it before. Well, Caesar. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render unto God the things that are God. Uh, the difference between civil authority and ecclesiastical authority. I'll get into that in a little more detail with a diagram that you might want to follow in a minute. But I think it brings us back to the fact that we certainly do have a responsibility. And as Christians, we can find that best. If you want to turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 13, we're going to look at parts of verses 1 to 7. 
And I've put it on the screen in case you don't have a Bible, but if you want to follow along, this is important. And here, as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, helping us really understand what our responsibilities are, he spends just a little bit of time talking about government itself. And he says that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. As we'll see in just a minute, this helps us understand that government's not our invention. Government is God's invention, and that government is established by God. He goes on uh, at the very last, I'm jumping ahead to verse 7, just to talk about the fact that you render all to what is due them. Remember the idea of rendering to Caesar? Tax to whom taxes due, custom to do custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so I think the first principle we can get out of this is not only is government ordained by God, but we are to what? Be in subjection to government. We are to obey government. Now, does that mean that we never disobey government? We talked a little bit about that last night. There may be extraordinary means, very rare, but times in which if government commands you to do something, if you do that, you would violate scriptural principle, then I think you are permitted to disobey But most of the time, the warp and woof of Scripture is we obey government because it's what? Ordained by God. Uh, So it teaches us that God has established government and the forms of government that we see here on earth. And more importantly, we are privileged as believers in this 21st century to live in a government that is of the people and by the people, of course, for the people as well. And that really ultimately means that God has put us in charge. Uh, Last night... Dr. Land just mentioned in passing, you know, the Bema seat, that we will be held accountable. And I think we'll be held accountable for how we've used our gifts and our abilities. I think we'll be held accountable for how we voted or did not vote. Because after all, that's one of the privileges that we enjoy in this country that, quite frankly, believers in many countries around the world simply do not enjoy. More than that, I would say that the first and most fundamental right is of voting. I mean, this is how we exercise power and actually determine who will represent us. We elect our leaders who are responsible, and in that, they are to be our representatives. And so I think it is very important that, if anything, Christians should be model citizens in that regard. We have a civic responsibility to vote, and we also have a civic responsibility to be involved in society. I had a conversation a while back with a Christian that was saying, you know, I just, I always try to get out of jury duty. And I said, so your philosophy is, is that you don't want ever to have Christians on jury duty. Well, no, that's not what I said. Yeah, but you decided that because you were a Christian, you were not going to serve on the jury. You really want people that don't agree with you to be on the jury. Doesn't it make sense that you want to have Christians on a jury? I have a young man who thinks he's going to be my son-in-law. I think that's going to happen pretty soon. And he's a lawyer. And he will tell you that he oftentimes goes into a courtroom and he would love to have Christians on a jury because they may be much fairer. They believe in justice. They believe in absolutes. In the society today, you know, there are a lot of people that don't believe that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. I certainly would like to be If I'm ever in a court of law, I have a jury that believes that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. You know, I'd kind of like to drive on the freeways out here with people that believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, right? I mean, this is the situation we have. And so we, I think, have a responsibility to be good citizens. And that means maybe serving on a jury. That means contacting your legislators. So let's look at another passage. If you will, go right. First Peter now. 
We've seen what Paul has said to Christians in Rome. What is Peter now saying to other Christians facing persecution? In 1 Peter 2, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. I think it's pretty clear that government is important because God talks about it quite a bit. Not only in the Old Testament, it really establishes a lot of principles for government, but we see this in the New Testament as well. Romans 13, 1 to 7, 2 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, all bring us back to this very important principle that government is ordained of God, and because of that, we should obey those in government. But also, interestingly enough, Paul tells us that we have another responsibility. In addition to obeying those in government, we should also pray for those in government. In 1 Peter 2, he says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So first of all, we pray for those in authority, obey those in authority. Second of all, pray for those in authority. And that is, I think, an important responsibility as well. Well, who do we pray for? Well, I've said over the years that certainly the best, maybe, group of individuals that are in authority over me and over you as well would be what I call your key 16. Who are those? Well, that's certainly your president. Then it would be nine members of the Supreme Court, your two United States senators, your representative, your governor, your state senator, and your state representative. So at least those are 16 people in authority over you. Would you agree? Now, if you want to add a mayor, or city council, school board, you could add some others, obviously. But these are very important individuals. Now, I suspect that if I was a real mean-spirited person and took a microphone in my hand and went out and asked, who's your state representative? Who's your state senator? A lot of you would start looking at your shoes, right? Because it might not even be possible that you would know. Now, I suspect some of you will. The fact that you're here, you might have a higher percentage of those who would know some of your elected officials than the general population here in Hawaii. But I think it is an illustration that if indeed God has commanded us to not only obey those in authority, to pray for those in authority, how can you pray for them if you don't even know who they are? So if you're looking for a homework assignment, and I'm not grading on this, but I'm an easy grader anyway, I would say that one of the things might be that if I really am going to take seriously this, I need to find out who these people are. I know you have some relatively new United States senators. You may not know where your representative is. And frankly, one of the good things that I'll talk about in just a minute, if you go to our website, pointofview.net, which is my radio program, you can actually log on and put your address there, and it will pop up all of the information. We've got this real fancy computer. We do this because we encourage people to contact their legislators. And it actually will let you know, based on your address, where you are. But there are lots of ways to do that. As a matter of fact, I suspect the state of Hawaii has a website that allows you to do that as well. I certainly know that it's something that you might want to seriously consider. If you want to be a good citizen and you want to pray for those in authority, it would make sense that you would need to know who those people in authority are over you. You with me on that? So again, I think we can come to a couple of obvious conclusions before we move on to our next section. And that is we should obey those in authority, although there are some exceptions. We should pray for those in authority. And finally, we should vote for those in authority. 
I think it makes sense because in Romans 13, if you look back on that passage we just had, it talks about those who have authority that are going to be accountable to God. Dr. Land last night talked about the fact that we as Christians are going to have to give an account for all the deeds that we did, both commission and omission, and certainly voting is a very important aspect of that as well. And so we can see that right off the bat we have some very important civic duties. So if you're with me for a few minutes before it gets too warm and everybody falls asleep, I'm going to now convene a political science class for just a minute. You know, last night Pat Zucran talked about worldviews. How do worldviews apply to government? And I would suggest to you, and I'm going to make this very simple, because if I was teaching a true political science class, we'd go into a lot more depth. But for just a few minutes, let's pretend we're in a science class, political science class, a government class, and talk about two different worldviews that are in collision right now. One worldview could best be called naturalism. This is the worldview that you get most often when you go into a college classroom. I've been with probe ministries since 1976. Was that 39 years? And I've gone to a lot of universities. And I've gotten beat up in a lot of classrooms, and I can tell you that in a typical university, the worldview that is in a political science class, a government class, a science class, a history class, a sociology class, is going to be pretty much a worldview of naturalism. What does that mean? Well, it's the idea that nature is all that there is. The second idea is that God does not exist, or if he exists, he's irrelevant to the academic study. He's irrelevant to what we do. So as a result, as Pat pointed out last night, if you don't believe there's any God, then you don't believe that there's any revelation from God, and you don't believe that there are any moral absolutes. Would you accept that? Well, then, that means that ethics is not based upon some kind of morality that's rooted in the revelation or scripture, but instead ethics are relative and situational. And most importantly, that would then mean that the laws themselves are arbitrary and sociological. We talk about oftentimes this idea of sociological law. Now, if you were to ever be subjected to one of my classes that I teach on political theory, I would say that one of the best ways to illustrate that would be to look at one man by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And he wrote a book called The Social Contract. He wrote many others, but we'll talk about that. And see, he starts with that assumption of the fact, let's go back to this, that there are no moral absolutes, that ethics are relative and situational, that laws are arbitrary and sociological. He would basically say that there is no moral standard. There is no Bible. We can't use the Bible. We can't believe in God. We can't believe in moral absolutes. So how do you put together a government? Well, Rousseau says, well, we go back to the state of nature, and we see individuals maybe before there was government at all, and eventually they have to put together a social contract. And the social contract would simply say, you know, I'm going to prevent you from killing me. We're going to follow certain rules. And we could have this social contract right now. Let's just say that we're going to create the social contract in this church. Let's assume that there are no rules there is no pastor, there are no deacons, no elders, nobody here. We're all of a sudden going to take over, okay? We're going to do anarchy for just a minute. And, well, then we have to make some decisions, okay? Will you be allowed to bring in things to drink in the sanctuary? Yes or no? Will everybody sit here? How will we structure that? Who's going to be uh, responsible? And you would say, well, okay, how do we make that decision if there's no moral, you know, revelation well, then we'd either make one decision where we just have a vote. Okay, 
How many people believe that we should be allowed to bring coffee cups and drinks in the sanctuary? And if 51% say it's right, then it's right, okay? And if 51% say it's wrong, it's wrong. After a while, you might have some people say, you know, I'm getting tired of voting on this. I'm just going to take over. I'm going to be the ruler here. And that's why a lot of people have said that Rousseau is sometimes seen as the father of modern democracy. Others have said he was the father of modern dictatorships. When I was at Georgetown University, I was in this class on modern political theory, and my professor got sick. And so my substitute teacher was Jean Kirkpatrick. The next year, she became the ambassador to the United Nations. But that year, she had only gotten the attention of candidate Ronald Reagan. The next year, President Ronald Reagan put her in the UN. But she was actually my substitute teacher in that class, and later was one of my major professors later on. But in that class, she said, you know, it is a puzzle if you think about it, because Rousseau is seen not only as the father of modern dictatorships, but also the father of modern democracies. But if you think about it, if you don't believe in any moral basis... It really doesn't matter. It's either a tyranny of the minority or it's a tyranny of the majority. That's why a lot of us say this government was founded as a republic, not a democracy, based upon moral law. But today, this is the way a lot of government is taught. In a sense, they don't say there is no God, but they just simply start with the assumption that there is no God. Is a Christian view a little bit different? I would suggest to you that it is. Because a Christian view would start with a different set of assumptions. Instead of saying there is no God, a Christian view would say, no, God exists, Genesis 1. In the beginning, what? God. We would start with the assumption that there are biblical absolutes, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and many other commandments. Also, interesting enough, we would start with the assumption of human sinfulness. I didn't get into this, but Voltaire and Rousseau and many of them would believe in the basic goodness of human beings. But a Christian view would say, well, you know, even though we recognize that we're created in the image of God and we have value and dignity and altruism, we also are sinful and we can be ambitious and greedy and selfish, right? So a Christian view would have some kind of checks and balances on those political ideas. And most importantly, what we just looked at a minute ago, we wouldn't say that man came up with or human beings came up with the idea of government. We would come back to Romans 13. We would say what? God established government. Now, I would suggest to you that not all of the framers, which we talked about last night, had a Christian view, but many of them did. Significantly, a very large percentage of them had this view in mind, and thus they established our government based upon this kind of worldview. But at the same time, I think they made some mistakes, as all of us would agree. But nevertheless, I think in some respects our republic has worked well because we take seriously human sinfulness. We don't allow any one individual to get too much power. It's kind of begun to fray at the edges, but the theory still made a great deal of sense. But if you want to think about how we would then make sense, as you can see in your handout, between the government or the state and the church and the family... I want to put a diagram up here that I've created. It's nothing I've ever found in a textbook, but it's a way for me to kind of think through how God has ordained these institutions. And that is, I hope you can see it pretty well, on the left-hand side I said, let's look at one institution that God has established. We'll call it the state, the government. I put down a couple of verses there. We've just looked at those, haven't we? Romans chapter 13, 1 to 7. We should obey those in government. 1 Timothy 2, we should pray for those in government. So what is the symbol that we could use to illustrate the importance of this particular institution? And I put the word sword. 
Why? Because in Romans 13, it says government does not bear the what? Sword for nothing. And that's the idea that government is given the use of physical force. Now, how does it use the sword? Well, in two ways. First of all, to protect us from foreign invaders, the military and others. And the second is to use the sword to protect us from criminals within our borders, the police force. Does that make sense? And so we allow the government in limited ways to exercise physical force. Now, we can have debates about capital punishment and all sorts of things, but that whole category fits into what is the role of the government according to this God-ordained institution. The second one, and I'm going to come back to this in just a few minutes, and this will set up certainly some of the things Dr. Lyand is going to be talking about, of whether there's a separation of church and state. And we would agree in one sense that the institutions are and have to be separated. And I put down a couple of verses here. First Corinthians, it's all about church government. I put down First Timothy 3. We had First Timothy 2 up there. First Timothy 3 is the qualifications for an elder. So it gives you an idea that just as there is civil authority, there's also ecclesiastical authority. This one's a little bit tougher, but what kind of symbol? I use the idea of the staff, kind of like the bishop's staff, because the church has moral authority. What's the church's role? To speak out against unrighteousness, to call sinners to repentance, to disciple believers, really to be a caretaker of moral views in the world. And that's also a God-ordained institution. One more real quickly. In addition to the fact that God ordained the state and the church, he also ordained what? The family. And I put Ephesians 5 and 6. There the symbol I use is the idea of the rod. Spare the rod, spoil the child, those kind of ideas. And there would be instructional force. Now, a lot of the problems we have happen because one of the institutions gets out of balance or one of the other institutions tries to solve a problem that should be solved within that institution. Last night, Dr. Land went into some detail with the fact that, you know, if the family is weak, the government is weak. Matter of fact, if the family falls apart, oftentimes the government feels like it has to step in and become the surrogate parents, or else the church has to jump in. Sometimes the state says, we're going to take care of the moral issues of the day, or we're going to exclude moral involvement of the church or Christian organizations. One of the individuals I have on my talk show very often is a man by the name of Tony Evans, and he will tell you that all the outreaches he's been involved with year after year, whether it's to help the poor, whether it's to go into the prisons, are stymied at every level. When Chuck Colson was alive, he oftentimes would come on the program and talk about how prison fellowship is really prevented from doing things that I think would actually reduce the recidivism rate in the prisons. And you can see all sorts of conflicts that come because one institution or another takes too much authority or is outside of its God-ordained authority. But if nothing else, that gives you a little bit of an idea of the structure of government. Okay, political science is over. Let's get back to history for just a few minutes. Because what I wanted to do is remind us from what we talked about last night and continue on, that historically Christians have been very much involved in political and social action. We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed part one of Kirby Anderson's study entitled Government and Civic Responsibility. We hope that you find this broadcast to be a blessing. If so, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. 
We have a wide variety of resources available to you. And for the opportunity to donate to keep us on the air, click on the donate button on the side of our homepage. Join us here next time as we conclude this exciting message right here with Dr. Pat Zubrin.